All right, welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside podcast. My name is Dennis. Uh, Kevin is with me today in person. We're, we're back in person for the, for the time being. Um, and then our guest today is Donnie Vincent. Um, Donnie's in town, and so we get to sit down and chat a little bit. Um, how's it going, man? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really good to be here. It's really cool to see your guys' operation and see a little bit behind the uh, behind the products. It's really cool. Um, and we were just talking about that a little bit uh, before we got on on the podcast here. Um, products, different products, uh, mainly stuff that we were looking at, Dyneema products, yeah. right? Super light, lightweight stuff. Strong. Um, and, and all that. And you just got back from the Arctic? Yes. Is that correct? Yep. Um, well, you seem to spend a lot of time in the Arctic. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. a lot of time. Yeah, it's definitely my, you know... <coughs> For years, I've actually done one now, but for years, um, guys would ask me, you know, why don't you hunt elk? Pe- people wanted to know, why why aren't you spending time in Colorado or Montana or Wyoming, Nevada? Why aren't you out west hunting elk? And it, basically, my answer is, why well, I, I, elk, for some reason, never really triggered that uh, wilderness response to me. Like, I, I really enjoyed seeing them. Um, if I saw uh, film of it or photos of it, it I, I appreciated it. But whenever I started thinking about September, I would just skip over the western United States and I immediately would start thinking about moose, caribou, grizzly bears, doll sheep. So I just would just started going to Alaska. And one of the most attractive things about going to Alaska for me was um, the fish returning every fall. So even when I was there hunting moose or caribou, like I could... Go, it, you know, it was almost Walt Disney-esque of seeing these rivers that would fill up with fish, you know, and so, like, mm-hmm. I loved seeing the fish come home, and um, and so that, you know, that was just a place that I loved to go, and the Arctic is just so wide open, but then I did an elk hunt a couple years ago in Nevada, and it was, um, there were aspects of it that I didn't like, um, and I've talked to that a little bit. There's, I, I bought a I bought a um, a landowner tag that's pretty sought after, and so I ran into way more hunting pressure than I thought I was going to run into. I had built up this image in my mind that I was buying one of very few tags for a huge area. I'm going to go in there. I'm not going to see anyone. I'm going to see elk behaving like elk. I'm going to be able to get up, get off the road, get away from people. I very quickly realized Western-type hunting, every guy that had a tag, had 20 guys helping him. There were side-by-sides and four-wheelers and spotting scopes. Like, you know, I'd go up a mountain road and I'd see four or five different groups of guys all in little clusters around a side-by-side or a pickup truck with spotting scopes on, you know, tripods that are up at six feet and everyone's just glassing for elk for their buddy that either drew the tag or somebody um, that bought the tag or or whatever. So that was not very appealing to me. I didn't enjoy that. But when I finally got away from people and started hunting it was incredible like hearing the bulls bugle and we got back in this uh, my crew and i we hiked up into this box canyon and we dug out these little camp spots um and we had these little little root shelters i would have loved to have some of your guys shelters in some of these situations what was the shelter we just looked at uh the little one yeah uh the silex silex i would have i would have given my right leg to have the silex in that scenario and so we dug out this you know, and I read in books about 
guys hunting elk and old school guys doing some of this stuff. And we're in this big box canyon. We dug into this um, hillside and the sun was starting to set. It was quiet. No one was in there. Um, And this big bull started just walking up and down the rim on the, um, I think it would be the west side of the canyon. He just started walking up and down the rim bugling right at dark, slightly after dark, like it was already dark, you know, and so you could see the twilight, you could see the kind of the orange glow where the sun had went down and the sky was turning blue, the stars are just starting to pop, and um, he was walking up there bugling, and I just, hair was standing up on the back of my neck, I had goosebumps, it was uh, instantly at that moment, I thought, oh yeah, okay, now I know what everyone's talking about, now now I understand it, but yeah, that's, the Arctic to me, it's, Watching caribou migrate, seeing a big bull moose, bull, 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 you know, and seeing the salmon. So, yeah, it's just. You know, um, I I get what you're saying on the elk hunting. Sometimes it's an absolute shit show, you yeah. know, to put it politely. Yeah. Um, one of my more memorable times was a few years ago. It was me, my son Owen, who you met last night at dinner, yep. and a friend of mine, Chris. We packed up. We took a six-man teepee. And. It was funny because we packed in, we got in there on Friday, the season started Saturday, and we were just kind of walking around on this flat kind of mesa area, and it's the area, area that I was telling you about hunting earlier, sure, right? Yeah. And um, a five-by runs up to us at 30 yards, just looks at us, and then turns around and goes off. He was bugling. It was probably about an hour before dark, and we were like, too bad it wasn't season already, right? Yeah. Um, that night, a herd of elk moved in about 150, 200 yards from our tent. And they started bugling, talking all night long. We could hear them fighting. Uh, We didn't sleep. I mean, it happened about maybe 9 or 10 at night. And all of us were in that tent. We were all like, tomorrow is going to be so freaking awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could hear Muse in the little drainage right below us and stuff. So we took about 10 minutes in the morning to get out of our tent. I mean, just opening the zipper so slowly we were just like we crawled out you know i mean and anyway the snow was a little crunchy and there was a little bit of mixed snow it turned out the elk were just over on these other side of some trees that we needed to get around to get a clear shot and from there while we were doing that these jack legs and i'm gonna call them jack legs um on horses which i thought this trail was a little steep for horses Mm -hmm. um they fired at about 700 plus yards yeah. at them from a long way away. Those, uh, we were literally probably within 100 yards of them. We just needed to get around a couple of uh, spruce trees. Yeah. And we had them. You know, all of them ran off. They came riding up on their horses, all super aggressive, right? We're like, I didn't, you could hear them. They're like, well, guess we missed. I didn't see an elk just drop, right? Yeah. Um, so we did a little. And how it changed those elk was immense because the night that night they'd been 200 yards from our camp all night long, mewing, talking. We never saw an elk that wasn't running for his life the rest of that hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, I found blood from where they thought they had missed, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was probably muscle shot. Uh, it wasn't, didn't look like it was bleeding extreme, sure. but they'd hit something, mm-hmm. right? But... After that, I mean, we saw one elk run by us at 35 miles an hour one yeah. time. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we, we couldn't get near them. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. Elk, when they're 
pressured versus non-pressured. I mean, when they're pressured, it's like they hole up. They mm-hmm. they make no noise. It is so hard to get anything on them. Mm-hmm. And then when they aren't pressured, you know, or if you find some in some basin that nobody goes in, mm-hmm. they'll be laying out above timberline, mm-hmm. talking in the middle of the day, you know, like they don't have a care in the world. Really, that's what you want as a yeah. hunter. That's what yeah. I want is yeah. to go places. It's, you know, you hunt even big big chunks of public or big chunks of private if you're able to like you to see animals behaving like animals and that's maybe one of the biggest reasons that I go to the art you know and and um I can you know I hire a pilot and I tell him where we want to go and flies us in drops us off and very rarely do I see other people and get to see animals behaving like animals but I did I did when I finally um I didn't do it on my own. I had no, really no idea how to hunt elk. And a really good friend of mine in Nevada, Adam Adam Roosh is his name. He's um, was he does a lot of guiding there. And so he said, I can only help you one morning, but I'll bring I'll t- I'll go with you tomorrow morning, and I'll just kind of show you the ropes. And we had hunted for like ten or twelve days already, and we could have shot we could have shot elk um, almost every day, but nothing that was really old enough that I wanted to to arrow and so uh he came out with us and and um and he said i know this one spot uh he said we'll go back in there uh and w- we should have it all to ourselves and i said okay you, you think so and he said yeah it's 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 a stinker to get back in there and so we should have it to ourselves but it took us you know four hours to get back in there or something it wasn't a stinker at all it was a beautiful walk and and it was a rainy misty morning and we found a big old bull and called him in and and um through you know variety of circumstances and we ended up getting him but uh that was cool and i learned a lot from him and just uh you know the elk were bugling over here but i would just stare at adam to figure out what yeah. he was doing to, yeah. to kind of so it's it's, a, it's an art form for sure so on the arctic trips yeah um i mean how much planning goes into those you spend a lot of time yeah. out in the field on those mm-hmm. um do you scour maps looking for a different spot every time just to explore new country? Or do you go into areas that you've maybe had some familiarity? Or has there been some someone say, oh, you should check out this drainage? Or or are you just at home and like, I think this spot looks good? Out of yeah, I mean, we'll pour over maps. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll, and, and as we've gone, you know, I've we've gone to areas where, you know, we thought, oh, we're going to be overrun with caribou. Like, we know generally that this is where they go. This looks like a really hunty spot. You know, we'll land there, and in 14 days we'll see five caribou or something like that. And then, you know, then we'll start to learn, like, well, we saw a lot of caribou heading over this drainage way over here. You know, we start to kind of pick that apart. Um, or um, last year we were doing a hunt up there in uh, – uh, Brian Albert's a good friend of mine. He's a pilot out of Kotzebue, and he runs a company called Ram Aviation. He's an amazing bush pilot. I've flown with him for years. And, you know, he is there flying every single day. So, like, when we came into um, into the area, we're like, oh, you know, we want to start over here. And he said, well, I, I encourage you to go over here because the caribou have been doing something weird the last couple of years where they've basically been heading south kind of towards – the village but then after they're there for a week or two they'll turn around they're turning around and heading back north east and then swinging way south below the village and he's like it's just kind of this funny little pattern that they've had that they've been doing so um you know and we're getting our our gear neck down our camera gear neck down 
um, you know, because we have to mess with solar power. That's how we power all of our stuff when we're out there. And then, um, and then we've now gotten to the point where we're taking a number of batteries, right? So we'll take, um, you know, uh, I'll keep the numbers to myself, but uh, essentially like, you know, we would take four batteries and that gets us so much time. And so then we do solar power. Well, then we take six batteries and okay, so that's going to, you know, and so we're trying to rob Peter to pay Paul because if as war burning juice up, you're you're at a losing battle for sure, unless you're going to have a lot of sunny days, which up there right, right. you're just not going to have a Don't lot of sunny days. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's just generally not that way. So, you know, we've gotten to where we're, you know, shrink shrink it down, shrink it down, shrink it down, and um, but that's it's dialing in your gear because when you're taking that many guys, it's a lot of food, um, and then you've got um, all the camera gear. You know, it's pretty yeah. heavy, and so, um, but it's just about figuring out areas that you really like or or um rivers that you like you know in, in a float trip that you want to do but things have gotten a little weird up there as of late you know it's the world is weird and i'm not gonna you know i have some opinions of it but i'll keep them to myself but there are certain rivers there that you can't as a non-native non-subsistence non-resident you cannot float these rivers you can float the rivers all you want but you can't float the rivers with moose or caribou meat in your boat. So essentially certain parameters are set up to make it difficult to hunt this region. So if you want to float, if you want to hunt caribou in, in this region, and then you want to get on this beautiful river and you want to float all the way out to X and then have your pilot pick you up there, um, it's now illegal for you to float down this river corridor with caribou meat in your boat because they want to leave this corridor corridor open for people that live in the village and and um they don't want um non-residents in there uh, pressuring the animals and so i you know i certainly can understand that but there's even up there there's um you know there's laws you have to follow in areas you have to yeah. kind of go to and and you start to figure it out last year we were there we and i saw the is the first time i've ever seen a true migration um i've seen you know i've had days where i've seen five six seven hundred caribou but last year i was there and you know in, in a day we saw I mean, five thousand caribou now, now are you hunting more the western arctic or the eastern or western just, arctic oh you western are arctic so more in the cops yeah. of you yes is that where you're usually flying out of yeah there? that's generally um um i have a trip right now set up um next year to fly with 40 mile yeah and um and i have an area that um that I have lined out to to give it a shot, but uh, but yeah, we'll see how that. You know, we have, we're supposed to fly with Forty Mile next year too. This year or next oh, year? Next year, yeah, because yeah. because so we delayed this year's trip. Yeah, so everything yeah. was all. And I was going to go back to Kotzebue yeah. this year, but it um, it was it was weird. It what, was tough to tough to fit one in. One of our early customers, <coughs> one of the early Seek Outside customers, probably year one or two, used to run a trap line of oh. Kotzebue. Mm -hmm. And they had a small teepee and a stove, and they would give us field reports of, well, I managed to keep it warm in 60 below zero. Yeah. And th th they would go around on their snowmobile. They it had like be a, really cold there. They had like a 300-mile yeah. trap line yeah. route that yeah. they would cover in their snowmobile. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, I did a trip there one time. This was really cool. But this pilot, he, he totally, and I regret not making the most of this trip, but it was really cool. Um I, I drew a moose tag, which is not even available anymore to non-residents up there. Uh, it was an amazing moose tag. I did not kill a moose, and I 
I, I got so, I was seeing such big bulls that I got really picky and, and uh, ended up basically chasing my tail the whole time. But the pilot dropped us off and, um, and we stayed for 23 days. And so when he picked us up, it's really cool. And I want to do an, a trip like this again, but he dropped us off. It was basically, you know, highs in the fifties and sixties. All the alders were green. Grasses were green. The whole Arctic was green. You know, there were bugs. Um, nothing had started turning yet. The moose were in velvet. Um, it was just cool. And then, you know, we stayed there for 23 days. And at the end of 23 days, you know, things were freezing. All the leaves had turned brown and fallen off. Like, we watched this total progression in 23 days of watching the Arctic go from summer to fall and actually starting to kind of kiss winter. And when he picked us up, you know, like most bush pilots, even though this guy's really, really good and really cool, you know, he's kind of putting our gear in the airplane. He's just talking to me like, you know, did you guys have a good hunt? Sorry you didn't get one, you know. And I said, no, you know, so what? we had our opportunities, and we did. And and, um, and he goes, did you see any uh, did you see any black bears? I said, yeah, we saw several black bears and, and um, some stunning, stunning black bears. And, and again, I had a black bear tag, but, but – um, but I was fixated on the moose, so I just was kind of passing the bears. And he said, did you see any grizzly bears? And I said, yeah, we saw several, uh, several bears, some sows with cubs, and this one massive boar. We would see him like every three or four days. He would kind of just traverse this valley in front of us, hunting ground squirrels and, uh, you know, whatever else he was after. And he's like, you know, did you, see any, did you see any moose? You know, what did you see for moose? I'm like, we saw tons of moose, tons of cows. And he said, did you see any big bulls? I'm like, we saw multiples that I would put mid 60s to over 70 multiples big ones and and he's like you know what else did you see I said we saw moose fighting like we literally saw these two Boone and Crockett level massive 70 inch bulls we could see them about a mile apart we could see them calling to each other it was too far for us to go after them it was like seven miles from our camp but you, you see them calling, and then they'd move into a woodlot, and then one would move into a pasture, and then you'd see them calling and raking trees, and they'd move a little bit closer. And we watched them until they met in a meadow and just had a brutal fight. We watched this whole thing. You know, then he, then we saw packs of wolves and, and um, you know, ate blueberries. And we saw the northern lights, and we had really bad weather, and we had really great weather, and all of this stuff kind of culminated and he and he he just looked at me and he's like I just love that you guys stayed out here for 23 days and saw all of this because people come to me all the time and they want to fly in for four five six days but they tell him well, I want to see all of this stuff said, I want to yeah. see the moose the caribou the grizzlies the black bears the wolves the northern lights you know and and he's like, you're not going to see that. You know, you'll never see that in five or six days. And so he, he he loved the fact that we stayed there for 23 days and saw all this stuff and really experienced, became part of the landscape. And, and that's really why we like to stay for a long time. That's truly, um, that's the number one reason is I, just to start to become part of the landscape. I have a question. Um, mm-hmm. You sound like you do a lot of September caribou stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, on my research, and I may be absolutely ignorant on this, mm-hmm. I heard that by mid-September they start getting ruddy, and a ruddy caribou is an awful caribou, mm-hmm. like practically inedible versus mm-hmm. where elk are edible and ruddiness and stuff. Uh, what have you ran into on that? Totally fine. 
Like I've, really? I've not found one to be unedible yet or or even really very – I've had some. I've had some. So let's say I, the bull I killed last year, he was an exceptional bull. Um, but he um, – there's been bits and pieces of him that um, haven't been the best to eat. But okay. there's – but – it's just been certain packages, right? You know, I'll pull, I'll pull sure. out some, and it's sure. just fantastic. And then all of a sudden, I'll pull one out and just, <laughs> and you know, just put a little bit more salt and pepper on that one, and yeah, and yeah good yeah. to go. But yeah, yeah, that's a moose. <laughs> that that's, was a customer of ours. That's a moose. Yeah, when talking, um, he uh, had a had a bear incident where a bear busted into their tent, mm. and then they ended up car- killing the bear. But that was the moose they got on the trip. Hmm. That's a moose. Yeah, that's a moose. Yeah, yeah. That's an Alaska or Russia. Yeah, that's an Alaska. Alaska. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that a moose. <laughs> that is. We'll try to throw a picture of that for yeah. you guys out there. Yeah. Wonder yeah. what the heck we're looking at. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty yeah. big. Yeah. Um, are there any other places besides the Arctic where you try to spend twenty days at a time? You know, I mean, like to be honest with you, most. Okay. You know, like I, I don't do it very often, but um, even even when I'm hunting whitetails, um, you know, I like to dedicate twelve, fourteen days when, or even longer if I can. Like if I can be away that long, business wise, and away from home that long, I, you know, just uh, again watching watching the woods come to life watching songbirds migrate through an area as you're going from september and october watching the leaves change watching the deer go from full velvet into losing their velvet to sparring into making scrapes rubs and um yeah just just the longer i can spend out there the you know the better but um Mm -hmm. um and then i did some stuff in australia too that was i have a really good friend in australia named nick joyce and uh, we've done some long-form hunting in Australia, and that is with him. He's a bugger. Like, he's, you know, we're getting in Jeeps, and we're going over here, and then we're going to hike down to this ravine. And I'm like, what's here, Nick? He's like, I don't know. never been here. You know, like, we're, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, can we even do this? He's like, I don't know. And, and he's like, just, you know, just don't walk near any water. You know, there's one rule with the crocodiles. Like, where we are is a lot of crocodiles. So, you know, don't touch any snakes. You know, although he's, he always says, like, you might, you're the first guy I've ever met that's come here hunting looking for snakes as well but but like we you know it's even there you know the longer we're there we see all these different things we filmed a we got a bit of film there um you know some people are proud of the animals that they they harvest when they hunt you know big elk or big moose or big doll sheep whatever it is and i i am as well but i'm also extremely proud and probably way more proud of the things that we filmed you know, whether that be a bird or snake or um, predatory things. And, you know, a few years ago in Australia, we filmed um, a pack of dingoes hunting uh, a pack of water buffalo. They were All these dingoes, we watched them come in. We could watch the dingoes. They're um, bringing in their circle. And just like wolves would do with elk or just like wolves would do with caribou or whatever, they formed essentially an ambush and they descended on this calf and tried to hunt and kill her and we filmed the whole thing and i'll never forget this and you know we all want to be honest men but sometimes you know i might say hey dennis have you ever seen this and you might blindly be like oh yeah 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 you know you know you ever seen two 350 inch elk fight oh yeah yeah even though you might not have you know yeah and so (laughs) every year we watch them right (laughs) we watch these dingoes try to kill this calf and 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 then the dingoes turned on us when they when they couldn't kill the calf, they we were all sitting down, and I love my crew for this. 
we're all sitting down and the dingoes are stampeding the water buffalo right into us like theirs and i just said to everyone we're all just sitting there and i just said nobody moves like we we're filming this until the last second like even if we're going to get run over like just protect yourselves or you're getting run over but let's just stay steadfast and of course the as the water buffalo are sprinting right at us they got to probably like 20 yards and they saw like hey there's something you know they're, they're something they're not a big dumb animal they see us and they veer off well then the as they veer off the dingoes see us you know you could see instantly the dingoes thought oh well, here's a prey item. You could just see it in their minds. They're like, oh, this well, is here, smaller than here, what we were just chasing. Yeah, here's something oh, right here. Easier. But then, like, you know, 15 seconds went by, and, and you could just see another light bulb. This isn't going to work out for us. Like, this, <laughs> is, this is not going to work out for us. And so they kind of skirted us. You know, they're kind of, like, loping by, looking at us like you might envision a coyote doing. And I looked at Nick, and I said, when's the last time you saw that? And he just said, never. <laughs> never, mate. You know, and, <laughs> and then we released that footage and um, you know, all these dingo researchers from Australia started calling us and they said, we've never even heard of this. Nobody's seen it. Nobody's filmed it. Nobody's even heard of it. Nobody, nobody knew that dingoes were pack hunting Asiatic water buffalo. No one has ever seen this. And so, you know, I'm more proud of that than, than I am the, the buffalo that so, I aired so on that trip. But you see those things when you spend time in areas. Sure, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny that a lot of animals are far better hunters oh. than, than, than the bulk of us humans. Oh, yeah. You know, you know and, and the, the cunning. Like, I've had two instances with mountain lions mm -hmm. um, that have given me a lot of respect for them. I've mm -hmm. alwa I always thought there was this one area where elk would come through this crack in a rock between the ridges mm -hmm. and i always thought man i bet you that's a great place and if there's a happens to be a bunch of hunters in the area that's part of an escape route mm -hmm. and i should just go for hunting season bivy right in that crack and just wait for something just take it easy mm -hmm. so snowed one day and i thought i'm gonna go in there and see what all activity there is from the tracks it was before hunting season went in there and there was mountain lion tracks all over that crack. Oh, yeah, I was using like, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I was like, never mind, dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> he says, no, please, Bivy. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I haven't had a burrito in years. <laughs> right, please, right. Yeah, yeah please, yeah. Bivy, under that yeah. tree. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Just spend the night. It's yeah. nice and safe. Yeah. Here, here, I'll, I'll, I'll rough up yeah. this yeah. little, a little tough dirt for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry about the. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's funny, but yeah, it is. There, uh, there's a lot of in interesting things to see, and and you start doing things like that. You yeah. start picking things apart, and then you start seeing like, oh, a lion is using this area too, you know. And mm -hmm. you find his kills, and same with grizzly bears. I've I've um, found ambush spots in the Arctic by just watching. You know, like one of the things that I love to do in hunting caribou is you just sit back and watch them. The first few herds will do you know this the next herds will do kind of what the first few herds will do and so i was walking i was watching these herds go through this little divot and i was mm -hmm. like oh it'd be a great spot to ambush with a bow i go down there i go into this little divot and i can see where a grizzly bear like there's dead caribou everywhere not not fresh ones but yeah he's whoever's been here has been killing here for years during the fall migration and so i ended up starting i was with a buddy of mine and we called that area the grizzly's kitchen so we started to, I, you know, because as we would split up, he'd say, where are you going? I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go just east of the Grizzlies kitchen. And he'd say, oh, I'm going up here on the plateau or whatever. But, like, same thing. Like, we saw that as a great ambush spot. We went down there, and obviously someone else yeah, did yeah. as well. Yeah, someone yeah. else. Uh, and even you, I mean, last night when we were at dinner, you and uh, 
Kyle were were talking about the s- cunningness of squirrels. See, so. And it's serious. Yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of detail, right? Like the more time you spend, obviously twenty twenty some days, you just you pattern, you see things, you learn, you see things happen more than once, maybe, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, okay, so mm-hmm. that's gonna that's how it goes, mm-hmm. or that's where they go, or yeah. that's why. Oh, it was, it was it froze overnight, so they're here instead of here. You you learn all of those things in in time. Yeah. Um, and and pick up on those patterns. Yeah, and just the the more time you can spend. Obviously, when you're when you the first like opening day of the season uh, is way different than day thirty. Yes. Of archery elk season. Well, right? yeah, like that's when that's when you're passing on the three fifties that are sparring. Yeah. Yeah, on the yeah. first day. Yeah. 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 For a big one. I'm wishing. Yeah. But they, you know, and that's also where some of the romance comes from, for us as outdoorsmen, and uh, you know, if if you have a grandpa that has an old, you know, walleye hole, right? Yeah. He hasn't spent he hasn't spent thirty days in that walleye hole watching the seasons progress, but he's went there one or two times a week, three times a week as the seasons have progressed. So his, his experience in that area, that river system, that lake has added up, you know, whether he's fishing muskies or walleyes or rainbow trout or whatever, these things are adding up to where, you know, when you're fishing with them or you're spending time with an old timer or somebody that's done it, you know, they can tell you stories because they've spent so much time in this particular area they have a lot of experience, you know, they have a big data set of well, things that they can tell you about what, what happens when the water turns cold, what happens when the water's too hot, what happens when it's too high. And, you know, that's where we start to get our wisdom of, yeah, of being woodsmen. Munther, Munther, who's the former biologist I was mm-hmm. telling you about last yep. night, uh, I would love to get him on the podcast, but I think he's maybe a little podcast shy or whatever, sure. but, but he has some stories mm-hmm. and he has some conservation opinions that are really entertaining to listen to. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he told me this story, and th- he was probably like 65 or so at this time. He was hunting with llamas. He had mm. a goat tag in Colorado. He went up in the high country with his llamas, and he did very much the same thing. He was there like two, three weeks, mm-hmm. um, waiting for the goats to come down a little bit just mm-hmm. from weather, right? He had made himself a Tyvek suit, oh. um, and he had a I've white, done that. And yeah. he had a white hat yeah. that he put a uh, couple horns on. Oh, I yeah. haven't done that, but yeah, yeah. I'll <laughs> and, to and, that point. And when, and when the <laughs> and when the goats got down to where he thought, okay, now's a good time to go kill a goat. But he sat there two, three weeks just watching them, right? Um, then he started. He put on his white suit, his Tyvek suit, and his white hat, and he took his longbow. I think it was longbow or recurve that he had, mm-hmm. and he just started walking right into them. And if they looked put his head down, pretend he was grazing, yes. and then he would, you know, when they'd look away, he'd move a little closer, and he ended up arrowing one with his uh, that's incredible. bow. And that's, and that's incredible. That's yeah. incredible hunting. That's, you know, that's... Yeah, he's way into building, he's way into making decoys and stuff, oh. and so he, uh, you know, like the Tyvek suit, or, yeah. or things that will attract a moose in, like in Alaska and stuff. Mm-hmm. He's got, he's got some super interesting stories, and he's also a hell of a bird hunter. You know, it's funny because I was talking to somebody and they were like, yeah, I won a hunt down in uh, Arizona, a bird hunt. And I went down there and they were like, well, you meet your guide here and here comes Munther as the guide. He was just guide. You know, he lives in Montana and he winters in Arizona just hunting Mm -hmm. and and stuff. So interesting cat. Yeah. And birds, uh, you know, birds and and I think 
in the your recent film that just came out, the the Winds of Adak, mm-hmm. you you do some kind of sea duck hunting, mm-hmm. um, and you talk about if maybe if you could do only one thing, it'd be duck hunting. It'd be duck hunting. Yeah, yeah, and, and so like, what's that? What's that progression? Did you start duck hunting before you did anything else? You know, where you know duck hunting is like one of those things where it's an investment, right? It is. Decoys, decoys yeah. are not cheap. Yeah. You need a lot of them yeah. sometimes, depending yeah. on where you are. Yes. Um, if you're going to the Dakotas, kind of these fields, open fields, you need a lot of decoys, lot of decoys enclosed yeah. trailers and yep. lights and, like, all, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, like, why waterfowl? Uh, you know, like, did, did you start there? And then, I mean, you obviously still do it a, a fair amount. I do. Anyways. Yeah, and I'm, I'm probably actually going to start even doing it a little bit more um, here and there. But I um, – so I started really with uh, squirrels and rabbits, like we were talking last night. Like for, I took squirrel hunting um, very seriously. I used to go out with my dad. Occasionally, he would take me squirrel hunting, and for my dad, like I was describing to you earlier, hunting for my dad was really a walk in the woods. It was it was loading. I just remember the wood stock of the guns that we would carry, and I remember whether it be a twelve gauge shell or loading the clip um, of a little twenty two or having a, a you know the uh, barrel loaded twenty twos, yeah, 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 where yeah. you put yeah. it in the little cylinder. And like I'm, and and we would just walk around, and it'd be eating. It would be eating an apple, you know, and it would be eating, um, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And so that's what we did. But then I ran into some buddies, and they said, "Do you do, you, do you uh, do you duck hunt?" And I said, "No," you know. And so I started talking to these guys a little bit, and they, um, a couple of them had hunting magazines, and so I grabbed them. I grabbed the hunting magazines and. I just started reading about duck hunting and I realized that um, like this was, I could find real adventure with, um, with doing some duck hunting. And so I would, you know, I'd go into Gander Mountain or Cabela's or wherever it was and I'd buy, you know, well, a couple of things, but I, you know, I finally save up and buy six mallard decoys yeah. and then the waders and then, you know, the headlamp and, and, um, and when I was a um, a senior in high school, I saved up my money. This is so weird to even think about this stuff right now, but I saved up my money, and I knew I was working at a veterinarian place at the time, and there was a dog groomer that uh, shared an office with this veterinarian that I worked for, and she would train hunting dogs. Hmm. Now she really loved training hunting dogs, and so she had a hunting dog named Claire, um, that dog is still one of the loves of my life, but she had this hunting dog named Claire that just wasn't cutting it on her field trial circuit. So she said, um, you know, she was just telling me one day, she's like, I got to get rid of Claire. And I said, man, I, can I buy her? And she's like, well, she's pretty expensive. And I was like, well, I don't care how much, you know. And she said, I forget what I paid for her, but it was like $1,200 for, sure. for Claire. And sure. so it was $1,200. And so I said, well, I don't. You know, $1,200 is $1.2 to me. <laughs> For then. sure. Especially, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she said, how about how about you can take Claire right now and um, and you can pay me $100 a month. And I said, deal. $100 a month I could do. So I was still living at my parents. And so, um, so I bought Claire, had decoys, you know. And it, for me, it was just I now had an adventure that, I could do on my own that was as big and it still is to me today it, it was as big as any adventure I've ever been on it was as just as big as going to hunt in Russia or going to the Arctic Circle or rafting a river like loading up my decoys having my dog my headlamp my shotgun 
and you know, I'd sneak down these little rivers near my parents' house in in Minnesota, and and throw out decoys, and it'd be snowing, and I'd and I had my dog, and a, you know, cocoa and donuts, and it was it was it was as big an adventure as you could have. And then um, Gander Mountain used to sell um, Bigfoot decoys. Do you know what Bigfoot decoys yeah, are? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And they would sell them for twenty four ninety nine a decoy. Sure. So yeah. as I started making more money, every I told myself every time I go into Gander Mountain. I'm going to buy one. So I'd buy a goose decoy. Then I'd buy a second one, third one, fourth one. And I remember I used to go out. I could fit six of them on my arms. <laughs> so if I found a field where geese and ducks were landing in, I could put six on, walk out there, set them out. And so I just slowly kept growing my waterfowl stuff. And then I bought a little enclosed trailer. And so I just, just like what you said, I started going to the Dakotas. And like going to North North Dakota duck hunting was mm-hmm. as I mean, I might as well have been going to Saskatchewan to, you know, sure. it's, it was incredible. And so that's how it progressed, you know, and then I started doing, then I picked up a bow and then I introduced a whole nother obsession, if you will, and hunting big game with a bow. And so I had my, my squirrel hunts, which I took very serious. And then I had my waterfowl hunts, which I took very serious. And then I, and then I started bow hunting and then, you know, I started bow hunting when I was late though. I was in my twenties, sure, you know, so sure. then. Then I started doing biology work, and so all of this stuff has been, like, I, I'm telling you all these stories, but all this stuff is really pretty truncated down. Like, I haven't, I don't really have a lot of experience. Like, I'm still figuring my way every day that I'm doing this. So mm-hmm. it's 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 all it's all been a learning curve. Yeah, and um, I don't I don't think I appreciate enough of the things that I was able to do when I was younger. Yeah. Like thanks to my my dad dragging me to the Dakotas. Yeah. Like we went every year. Yeah, we duck hunting. Yeah, we didn't have a ton of decoys, and we we hunted them like we would hunt northern Wisconsin, like yeah. jumping them in lakes yeah, and, and just yeah, just kind of figuring out where they're gonna go, like watching them almost like you would big game, right? Like, well, they're gonna go there tonight. Okay, well maybe we, we need one. We gotta figure out who owns that. Yeah, gotta go figure knock out. Knock on the door. Yeah, knock Bring them a door. pie. Yeah, yeah. Dude, the little like. 12 year old Dennis yeah. was a pretty yeah. good pretty good in yeah. to most of these De- places Dennis you go up there <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, yeah and, and just appreciating that right like being able to hunt those places um, we we actually we don't have a ton of headsets here but but Kyle who we were talking about a little bit before has joined us here howdy howdy Kyle um, and we were talking last night about kind of that squirrel hunting and growing up you know you grow up with these what seem like big adventures and they and they are but they definitely get downplayed later in life when you start hunting whitetails elk yeah. you know you're like chasing elk uh, like squirrels don't get the play maybe that well, they well and especially now i think people are trying to accelerate their youth so you know now when i uh, i i've had this brought up to me so many many times now in recent years where guys are you know they'll say hey here's my son Dennis he's 10 he's already shot you know, caribou, moose, black bear, grizzly bear. Like he's, you know, he's already done this. And I just think, oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> that's yeah, very well, unfortunate. What's left to get? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, there is a lot of lot of provisions being provided for them where it's, you know, like um, I, I think growing up yeah. with your dad and squirrel hunting and, and sitting on the stand like you were describing is I think that's I think that's really amazing. Yeah, I mean, you're doing your time in the woods. You're, you're coming to appreciate the failure of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you spend yeah. a lot of time not seeing deer, mm-hmm. not seeing squirrels. Mm-hmm. It, it's all it's all part of the endeavor, you know. Yeah, and building a better mousetrap, right? When you when you this is how it worked for me. My dad wasn't a good hunter, and he 
He's heard me say that. <laughs> it's funny. He now, he now hears, he sees it in magazine articles. He hears it on podcasts. He sees it like in the films. He's on, and he's like, hey, 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 easy. Let's back easy. off of this a little bit. <laughs> and so, um, but for me wanting to be successful, and I actually had um, I had a falling out. Ah, that's a little strong. I had a, I had a friend of mine when we were in high school, just out of high school. We had a pretty serious discussion one time. We were duck hunting. We had a pretty serious discussion. He's like, man, I don't even know if I want to hunt with you anymore. And uh, and I said, why is that? And he's like, you're obsessed with success. And he's like, all you want to do is kill. And and I said, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. But for him, duck hunting was get your decoys, find a pond, and just go set out your decoys and enjoy the sunrise. And I thought, well, that that that's really great. But how about we drive around in the truck for four hours and find the pond that all the ducks want to be on, and we do exactly <laughs> what you want to do, but this time we have hundreds of ducks landing in our decoys rather than just looking at absolute mirror glass water, yeah, you know? Yeah, and yeah. so he'd say, well, you know, he didn't really want to drive around for the four hours. He didn't want to carry decoys a mile across the prairie into a hidden pond or into a little hidden river. And so, like, like you said, you sit there – putting your time in the woods mm-hmm. well if you want to go squirrel hunting and you're not killing squirrels and you're not then eating squirrels you know then you then you better start figuring out how to find squirrels and how to That's kill right. squirrels and how to eat squirrels so then you start becoming a better you know it's just like going down your favorite fishing hole and you cast at this big rainbow and he doesn't take the fly you know and you cast five times and you're like okay what i i have to change the fly or i have to change the presentation or i have to come here at night I have to do something to get him to eat. Mm-hmm. And then so you start like the you truncate down these experiences, right. you know what I mean? And there's there are shortcuts, but there are none of them will get you really where you want to go. Yeah. Mhm. Then uh Kyle, I know we're putting you on the spot a little bit, but we were, we had been talking about squirrel hunting last night, which is what we yeah. wanted to, <coughs> to wanted to touch on. So y- you've recently You've been in Colorado for uh, going on seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Um, you recently started working for Seek Outside, yeah. uh, and first I hear is you're chasing bears around, and then <laughs> it, as soon as that's over, it's like as soon as that's over, small game starts, and you're like, oh, I'm going squirrel hunting tomorrow. And I, like, you know, you're a grown man, right? And that doesn't happen a lot. I don't. I don't talk to people that are like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna yeah, tomorrow's open squirrel hunting." That, there's an opening day for small season. Yeah, yeah, yeah small game, small yeah. game season. Yeah, um, <laughs> and then and then you were just telling us about um, your wife getting into getting into hunting. Yeah. and squirrels and in all of that. Um, I don't know if there's any stories in there that. You yeah, I mean, so she, you know, she's new to all this stuff, and she's mm-hmm. more and more shown interest and enthusiasm for it uh last year we were out on some public access walk-in land in east colorado took her out 22 she'd actually gone rabbit hunting with me a few times didn't didn't harvest anything didn't kill anything Mm -hmm. so then there we are it's the day she's okay with it she's like yeah i really want to get a rabbit really want to get a rabbit (laughs) give her the 22 we're going along kicking juniper bushes trying to kick them out i guess a rabbit jumps out i just see her draw up with the 22 and she goes cottontail Pow! <laughs> she called it out. <laughs> she called her shot. <laughs> Very David Attenborough. <laughs> and uh, on the ride home, she says, I want to go elk hunting. Next step, 
Okay. Grab it. Had, had it. Was it a conversation that it, like that was the progression anyways? Had you been going elk hunting no. yourself? So we spent a lot of time hiking in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, run into a lot of wildlife. Mm-hmm. And uh, we even, you know, were vegetarians for six years. She was actually a vegan through most of uh-huh. that time. Uh-huh. You know, health, health driven thing. And so uh, it was always out there. Again, I grew up in the woods all the time. Yeah. Um, squirrels, rabbit, deer. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say her interest came back. When you're always in the woods and then you step away for a while, we lived in downtown Denver. Yeah. And you, you start to miss it a little bit. Yeah. And uh, by the end of our time there, we spent all of our time rabbit hunting and squirrel hunting, getting away. And I was fly fishing the plat in the middle of downtown okay. yeah. <laughs> every yeah. day, you know. Yeah. But uh, her, her progression is, I think she knew it was out there. I used to talk about packing out an elk. And she'd go, that's crazy. <laughs> that's just crazy. And I'd say, oh, it's just, just a couple of hundred pounds of meat, you know? Yeah. And we're ultralight hikers once upon a time. And so we carry 20 pounds. And I'm like, yeah. all you got to do is load 60 pounds on. Yeah. Well, doesn't sound so bad, does yeah, it? Yeah. A few times. Yeah. A few times. Yeah, a few trips. Once. Back yeah, and yeah. forth. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was one of the funny, we once upon a time had this in our head that we could, we're, we're good at mileage. And we're good with 20 or 30 pounds, so <laughs> we'll just pack out an elk, like, all day for two days, you know? There's no such thing as meat spoilage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. And so. That's really funny. Um, and so you, you said you grew up hunting kind of every, well, where'd you grow up first? Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, West Central, Georgia, Chattahoochee okay. River, that that part of the world right there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, whitetail, whitetail, whitetail. Mm-hmm. Whitetail. White, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, squirrels. Squirrels was the other big one, and you were saying it, it's with your dad going out you know, in the woods. I I remember that time, my four ten, mm-hmm. being told you can go on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't have to go with me and your uncle. Yeah, go on your own. And those those first early adventures hunting by yourself. You know, you, you don't get anything, but yeah, it's uh, boy, that was formative. Oh, uh, I have a I have a great story. So. I'm, I have to be 12. I would imagine I was 12, maybe yeah. 13, but yeah. I could definitely hunt probably for the first time. Um, that was the legal age back then, right? In yeah, Wisconsin, 12, 12 in 12, Wisconsin. Yeah. 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 That was like a coming of, you know, coming of age. Like yeah. that was, yeah. I'd been training for that for the last <laughs> six years. Yep. Uh, yeah, for, for <laughs> training and aging. Yeah, training and aging. Um, so I'm 12. My dad, it's a Saturday. My dad's working on Saturday. Um, he's driving past this property that we can hunt, that we can get permission to hunt on. Um, we have a tree stand set up. I kind of know where it is. So he pulls into the driveway. He's like, you know, you just go down the driveway. I mean, it's, you know, a fairly long walk in past their house, into the back fields of their house and their farm, and across the field into the tree stand. And I'm like, I'm like 12, right? Bow, like dark, flashlight, mag light, no headlamps at that point in my life. You know, I got a little mag light walking in and i can hear something moving like i get close to the tree saying i hear something moving and i just like sit down like it's a bear (laughs) it's a a bear it's noise in dark in the darkness it's a bear for sure it's a bear and i sit in the middle of this alfalfa field until it gets light out (laughs) waiting to see that bear coming at me 
and it's a raccoon. <laughs> it gets light enough, and I'm looking at this like little raccoon like running around in the alfalfa, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, there, there's my first day yeah. solo hunting. Yeah. Didn't even make it to my tree stand until it got way past light outside. Yeah, 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 those those formative years, right? Those beginning years, um, and then and then chasing everything, right? I remember. Uh, I remember getting sick. I couldn't go to school, but I wasn't sick enough to like, you know, have to stay home necessarily so I could go trout fishing. Oh yeah. I was like, oh, this is the best day ever. Mm-hmm. You know, I can bike down here and do that. Oh, yeah. Um and I don't know that I ever went squirrel hunting. I was it was more of a uh what are you gonna do today? Go squirrel hunting? My dad's like, All right, I'm gonna go over here. <laughs> you know, yeah, I would just go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would just yeah. go. Yeah. yeah chase chase everything through the woods yeah yeah it was just being in the woods i mean that's what it really was Th- yeah that's the beauty of small game is it's, it's a high volume thing you know you're gonna get a lot of opportunities a lot of skunks but that's all right you know mm-hmm. you get zeros you get days with just unbelievable amounts of opportunity mm-hmm. and it allows you to really hone in a lot of the skills and a, h- a lot of that patience mm-hmm. you know and when you say skunks, you mean like, yeah, like zero, zero. Zero. Not, not like skunks. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you, I did kick up a skunk just the other day. Was, uh, <laughs> oh, you did you? Yeah, up on the mesas. <laughs> really? Whoa, whoa, whoa back up. <laughs> we, um, your wife wasn't going skunk. <laughs> not calling it out. <laughs> She's gonna take it down. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. I uh, actually I have. Yeah. Roadkill squirrel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pull over. Um. You get a little less of them. Yeah, you get yeah. a little less sometimes, yeah. and if they. If they don't have any marks on them, be forewarned. They are probably really busted on the inside. Learn that the hard oh, way in yeah. the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get hit, hit. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's, it's interesting. There's no, there's not a lot of um, pressure. You know, it's silly to say, sure. but you know, if if you're looking for ducks, you're gonna find other guys that are looking for ducks. If you're looking for elk, you're certainly gonna find other people looking for elk and muleys and. And uh, but if you go looking and even like even pheasants or even sharpies or quail, like you're gonna run into other guys looking for that animal. But if you want to go squirrel hunting, I mean, so silly to say, but squirrel and maybe even rabbits, you know, you're gonna have the woods to yourself, a lot of the woods to yourself. And and um, I can remember coming out of the woods. I remember I think the limit was seven when I was hunting with my dad, and I never shot a limit with my dad, but I shot a few limits when I was by myself, or we would split up. And um, I remember coming out with seven squirrels and just thinking, like, man, alive. Like, look at their tails. Look at their bodies. You know, and I'd get home and I'd skin them. And we would quarter them. Mm -hmm. And then we would take um, what I think would be the back straps, essentially. Uh, Right? We'd take the little – I think we'd clip the ribs off and then we'd have the little spine. And we'd throw them in a frying – you know, we'd dust them with flour, salt and pepper, and some seasonings. Put them in a pan with butter and a little bit of oil. And – Chicken wing them, and th- th- I, it it's really good. It's really, it is. really good. And now, actually, now that I think about, so I've eaten mountain lion, and it's one of my favorites. And mm. now that I actually think about it, people often ask me to describe what it tastes like, and I always say flavorful pork. But now that I even think about it, they, they taste, which, which is kind of what gray squirrels taste like. Yeah. You know, it's kind of tastes like a flavorful chicken or a flavorful pork, and that's what that's what mountain lion tastes like. So, huh. but it's it's definitely it's something I just had. A, um, so the guy that I had the falling out with, or the discussion about our hunting tactics, he just texted me the other day. Uh, he's a he's a big time lawyer now, but he just texted me the other day and he said, "Hey, um, when you get back from your next trip." Let's go squirrel hunting. 
let's sneak out and go squirrel hunting, you know, cause, and I'm, I'm into it, man. Like I'm definitely going to, I wanted, I've noticed as I do bigger and bigger trips and do bigger and bigger films, which I still love to do, love it. And I'll do it the rest of my life. But I also want to dial back to doing some. And I drew a, I drew a waterfall tag this year in South Dakota. And so I'm going to head out there with a, probably a red cliff and my Labrador. Obviously I'm Claire, my first one, she's far gone. And then I had one named Maggie and she's far gone. And now I have one named Ellie. And so Ellie and I will load up in the pickup truck and we'll go set up a red cliff on the edge of a, um, on the edge of a pond and we'll camp and have a fire and shoot some ducks and eat them. And, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to that as much as I'm looking forward to any sheep hunt or anything else that I've ever done. And that's, that's a fact. Yeah. 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 Those are, powerful experiences yeah you know and, and there's some obviously for for us telling these stories uh there's some nostalgia for that like going yeah. back to i mean just remembering when i was 12 like cowering <laughs> with a raccoon <laughs> like you know like chasing <laughs> me through the dark <laughs> that uh, obviously was much bigger than that i, I uh, love that i love that it, you said it had to be a bear oh, well, that was first thought right like oh, always yeah. yeah anything that makes noise is yeah. a bear noise until, in the dark <laughs> until yeah. proven otherwise yeah, yeah. I had, I, I had a friend of mine recently he said, uh, hey, does it bother you when you walk out at night by a unpicked cornfield? You know, is that, did that bother you at all? I said, no. And he, and he said, just, he's creeped out by corn. You know, just. <laughs> just, just like the movement. Yeah, just it's always moving and shimmering. And, you know, there's been some movies. You know, Stephen <laughs> King wrote a genius uh, yeah, book yeah. about. Children of the Corn, Children, and, yeah, okay. and so it's like always been this kind of spooky thing, and he's bought into that, you know, and and uh, he he said, "What do you, you know?" He said, "Do you ever suppose what's in there?" And I said, "Other than corn?" And he said, "Well, yes, obviously, <laughs> other than corn." But I said, "No, I don't. I've never fallen into that spookiness. Even I've, you know, even going through alders in Alaska at night with a sheep on your back, and there's grizzly bears like walking on fresh tracks, like." I just haven't had, I just personally haven't had those experiences yet. I've been charged a few times, but I haven't had that really scary encounter um, that gets like my hackles raised on my neck, you know, And but I have friends that have, you know, I have friends that have had to shoot a few grizzlies that were going to make contact, and I just haven't had that yet, but um, it's just funny what our minds do, you know, and uh, yeah. Jack O'Connor had an awesome quote, and I won't, I won't get it anywhere near correct, but he said, basically, um, not villainizing, but basically making the black bear a big, scary animal makes the woods um, and the fields in the woods much more enjoyable. Because if there's a monster in them, we enjoy our time of field that much more. If we know he's a docile mm. creature that is basically like a, a, a bovine with canines, the woods isn't as fun as it is if we think there's a monster amongst us. So right. I, mm. and I really love that. I love mm. that notion. Same with grizzly bears, I think. Yeah, grizzly bears, yeah, they, yeah. They, it changes, right? Your experience with the landscape when mm. those things are around, e either that or <laughs> that are perceived, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, Kevin is showing a picture of his dog. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Expert, <laughs> expert, expert, squirrel expert, hunter. expert. All the patience in the world. Um. Yeah, it's interesting. Have you read? Uh, I forget the title for some reason i can roderick nash's book um oh man i'm gonna forget the name of it wilderness wilderness in the american way or I, something I, I have it's it. a mm -hmm. yeah, university of minnesota it was like a thesis that he wrote uh -huh. as a, his like doctoral thesis or yeah. something that turned turned into a book 
Um, and he talks about that, that, that like conquering wilderness was, was, you know, it was big and scary. Mm -hmm. So it, it was justifiable to go out and conquer the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And then once we, once we did that kind of in the lower 48, as it were, um, when, when Alaska came up, Mm -hmm. they were like, oh, we need this, we need to save the fact that it's dangerous, Mm -hmm. that it's spooky Mm -hmm. like the boogeyman lives in the trees Mm -hmm. like we need to save that Mm -hmm. um, because we we essentially just got rid of it Mm -hmm. you know uh wilderness in the american mind i think is the name of the book yeah Yeah. it's it's really good that talks through kind of we conquered and then and then we reeled it back we're like oh wait we need to change our perspective on on conquering the boogeyman or finding the boogeyman chasing him out and we we need him there like yeah to, we need to, to harbor the untouched. Yeah, yeah. And, and show us and let grizzly bears scare the shit out of us, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. we, we need that mm-hmm. on the landscape where mm-hmm. something is lost. Yeah. Sure. I can appreciate that very much, yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, anything else that we need to talk about? We've been talking for like an hour or something. Um, any other questions or things that you No, I've enjoyed it. I'd actually, this is Kevin again, I'd actually like to hear a little bit about your process in uh, storytelling mm-hmm. um, in your films, and, and you know, how do you go about that? I mean, is, is there something that you're trying to convey, or is it just the connection to the woods, or I- is it just you, um, the marketizing of it? I mean, we know things made for TV or screen mm-hmm. and stuff, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a, there's definitely a process, and it starts. Um, I just I just used this quote the other day when I was talking to somebody. I was doing an interview, and and um, I had a I had a uh, photography uh, I had a photography professor, and and um, I was shooting some photos um, actually of a, a heart surgery. I, I used to work in cardiovascular surgery when I was uh, um, when I was in college, and so. Um, I was taking this photography class and, and, and we had all these assignments of things that we had to shoot. And so I took this series of photos of, um, a patient and then, um, you know, the doctor and the, the setup and as the procedure would get into, uh, as we would go through the procedure of this, of the event of the patient being worked on, I kept taking photos that were closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. And afterwards, he was looking at my work. And he's like, oh, I really love this work. I love your progression. And he's like, I, I, he said, I love this one the most. And it was, a, it was actually a picture of blood um, kind of bubbling out of an artery. And, and um, I said, oh, why do you like that one the, the most? And he said, it's the, it's the closest. And he said, we find things far more interesting the closer that we get to them. If you see this table that we're sitting at from 100 yards, um, you know, you can appreciate it for being a table, but if we're all forced to sit right next to it and maybe even take a magnifying glass to it and actually look at the texture, the stains, the divots, the imperfections, you start to really appreciate getting that much closer to the table. And then, um, and as I learned about this concept of, uh, of entropy, this, 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 this continued state of disorder, and you understand that we are as much as we are living, we are really, what we really are is dying. That's really what we're progressing towards. And the same with this table is um, progressing towards its own decay, right? Mm-hmm. So I started to kind of embody these two notions and how that's how I would look at things when I was hunting. And, and so when we started building films, you know, we have this process of what really has happened on the trip, which is 
and our work is very close to what you see in the film. Um, the only thing that's really different is we might move timelines around to um, collect imagery that makes more sense in the beginning of a film or the end of a film, and we might, um, you know, we might sensationalize something. Whereas if I'm going to climb up this rocky slope, like this rocky slope on the left might be not as pretty as the rocky slope on the right. So we might go out of our way to go up the one on the right because the imagery is just celebrates, you know, the one, if you will, the one on the right might look a little more Colorado than the one on the left. Mm -hmm. And so we might do things like that. But we come up with this process of trying to film every day as though it's our last day. It's our only day. We have just today to kind of capture that imagery. And then I have my natural... Uh, connection with the woods just like we've been talking about with squirrel hunting or whatever else this um, you know the closer I get to what I'm doing the longer I stay really it's funny because that's what I mean when I you know, when we stay a long time it's just getting closer right that's what it is mm -hmm. you're seeing more things you're getting more details and so just embodying that as we're as we're filming and then um, you know, afterwards, uh, Kyle Nicolite, he's our director and our producer, he'll put together the skeleton of thoughts. You know, this was, this is A, B, C, D, E, F, G of the story. Here's some of the images that we have collecting and, and what are some of the things that we want to write about? And so, um, we'll then start to construct some high level, um, images that will go along with thoughts that will go along with the story. Like for instance, our latest film, Winds of Adak we started out, you land in, you can't help but when you're on the airplane, you're on the 737 Alaska Airlines flight coming into ADAC, you're staring out the windows and you can't help it. You see all this fog. It's always, it's foggy there, like 290 days a year, something like that. So you see this fog and it's just, shoo, 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 and you start to see army barracks and it's degrading and you see they're all run down. And so before we've even, the wheels have even touched the tarmac, I know that we have to, uh, like we are going to exploring these army barracks and looking at the history of the Jap Japanese Imperial uh, Navy invading us and ADAC and ATU and and uh, there's one more, uh, but anyway, um, Kiska or something like that. But um, and so you know, we take time to film that stuff to talk about it, and so we we take honest sound bites of like the things that I'm interpreting and how I'm feeling about this and impacts that this might have in me as after I leave here or while I'm here. So we'll take these stuff and we just organize that information and we'll go through and basically tell this story. And I was telling you guys earlier, the first time I ever wrote a voiceover for a film, I handed it to Kyle and he looked at it and he said, you know, what the hell is this? You know, I said, well, that's for the film. He's like, I've never even ever heard you talk like this. You don't talk like this. This isn't not how you look at wildlife. I wrote it. Not thinking back now, I don't recall what I wrote. I wish I would have saved it, but I, I probably wrote it a little bit more macho, a little bit more badass. And, and uh, he's like, you're, you're, you're intrinsically connected with the woods and wildlife when you're out there. That's, that's how you should write. You're saddened when you take animals' lives or when you see things that are degrading. Like, that really affects your mind. You should write about that. So then we started realizing he knew this he's a film graduate he's the one that's been educated on this so he said you know the more you write this for yourself donnie who cares about anyone else who cares if we sell one of these films like this is our business we're giving a shot at this but it's just like you you can't although you know it might be slightly different but you can't build 
tents and teepees and shelters, you can't build them as though you're like, I think this one's really going to sell like hotcakes. You have to build a shelter that is going to function for real hunting, real camping, real um, ultra lightweight backpacking. Like you have to build these shelters that are going to because then the people that are doing those things will come and buy those shelters. If you build a shelter like, oh, yeah, I think I think this color and this design will really sell. I don't know how it's going to function camping, but I think it's really going to sell. Well, it's really not going to sell. So you, so we would build our films for ourselves and, and, um, and understanding that people might not buy into them. They might not enjoy them. But as long as we keep it real and with ourselves, we'll never lose our trajectory right if we're start chasing everyone else's ideas or i see this guy who's doing films over here if i try to do what he's doing i'm gonna lose my way like if you know if if one guy's a really amazing archery shot and i'm like oh i'm gonna turn myself into a pro archer well i might lose my way or if this guy's a really really super fit guy and i'm gonna chase the fitness um biography of it you know i might lose my way but so just keeping things my way, having my intrinsic connection with things that are going on and have that kind of burdening wherewithal of remaining close to things and having this idea of entropy that, you know, this this idea that we are quite literally falling apart while we sit here and, and, um, and, and discuss these things. And so just coming out with an honest piece and, and every film that we make, there's holes, every film like wish we did this, wish we would have captured this. Like this last year when we were on ADAC, we were in really severe seas in this particular night. I wish we could show you guys that, but we were all so scared and it was so rough that we literally couldn't, like the captain of the boat was flying out of his chair and ending up on the other side of the boat. Like I, it's multiple times we'd be falling from the top of a wave and I could see our cameras literally floating up towards the roof of the boat and we'd smash into the, like, multiple times I was not we had we have a two um two Honda two fifties or three hundreds, I think there are two fifties on the back of the boat, and one of them failed. So now like we can barely make up some of these waves. It's like a little little baby little baby version of the perfect storm kind of thing. Like we're mm-hmm. trying to get up these waves and the waves are disorganized. We're in the Bering Sea, so like I would have loved to show that. But even if we could film it, even if we didn't have to hold on, it would have been like there's a sky, there's black water, there's a sky, there's black water. <laughs> like, barfing. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Kevin's, uh, Kevin's uh, in the bathroom yeah. barfing. <laughs> I, and I told those guys, I said, hey, the captain of the boat, because I get seasick, the captain of the boat, yeah. Corey Hedderine, said, man, you did really well. And I go, well, I finally discovered the cure for seasickness. And he said, what? And I said, paralyzing fear. <laughs> like, the seasickness didn't even enter my mind because I'm like, we're all going to die. Survival, you know? and, yeah. yeah, so, so – you know, it's just we try to be honest with that. And so in, in one of the areas that I also don't enjoy but is part of our process, we put the skeleton of this film together. We, you know, um, at Sigmanta, we have a musician that works for us named Casey Olson. He's a genius. He is a freaking genius. If he was sitting here right now, he'd want to vomit if I was saying these things. But he's so talented. But he'll score the music, and we'll come up with things that we want to say and footage that we have. But then we start getting truncated down into space, right? So, okay, so you have to talk about – so here in this part of the film, we have 48 seconds. We're going to talk about caribou, what they're doing here, who put them here, why why we are here to hunt them. 
So I was, okay, so now I have to write something in 48 seconds where literally if we could just sit here and talk about it for the next three hours, we could really have a discovery. But no, I've got to write about it. And I don't have, I'm not Leonardo DiCaprio and, uh, you know, we're, I, I'm not Brad Pitt and I don't have genius writers. I'm the writer. And so, um, you know, we do the best we can. And then, and then the only thing that I'll say that I have is a pretty strong outside influence is I understand that many people are going to be watching these films that aren't hunters and might have questions about hunting. And so I try to write it in a manner that it gives them some foundation of why we're there doing the things that we're doing. And it doesn't look like we're just picking a place in the middle of the ocean that is like, yeah, why'd you go there? And what are you doing there? And why is this there? And what, you know, the engagements and the kind of interactions with the environment. So, but it's just about storytelling and, um, it's really just a burning that we all have to go and do these things and to share them with people that A, can't get there themselves or don't understand why it is that they want to get there. I've talked to many vegans and vegetarians mm-hmm. and anti-hunters that say, you know, I'm kind of against it, but I also have this deep yearning of actually joining um, the realm of becoming a hunter and understand hunting and hunting rabbits or squirrels. And, and you know, that comes from our ancestry. Yeah. That's that's where they're confused is that we come from hunters and gatherers. And so yep. they have this yearning of, I want to pick up a bow and shoot a deer, but I don't understand it. And I really don't want to kill a deer because killing a deer is really horrible to experience and watch. And it's I shouldn't say it's horrible. It's a big event. It's a mm-hmm. serious event to take anything's life. Um, and it should weigh on you heavily. If it doesn't, um, you know, you, you should maybe have some introspective. You, you've unpacked a lot. In, in, in that right there mm. um, it's it's an amazing amount of topics you've covered from the being very close I think I've mentioned this to you Dennis that um, the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance one mm-hmm. of the things that always stuck with me was when he was trying to teach class I think in Montana or something and he said write an essay about the building across the, the street and no one really could do anything they were drawing blanks and then he was like write a story about the brick in the corner of that building. And all of a sudden, it seemed to unlock their creativity. Mm -hmm. And you also touched a lot on how important it is to be just honest with yourself and present that to the public. I think at some level, all of us can sniff out a fake, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That something doesn't feel right if people aren't being true to yourself. So we've talked about this on the Mm -hmm. gear part. We have to be true to ourselves first before it gets released out to the public mm-hmm. i mean if i i can't make a tent that i think wow this is a crappy ass design but we're going to sell it like hotcakes mm-hmm. unfortunately that's a problem that probably is too prevalent in this world as a whole is companies individuals right. doing things you know i notice that in backpacks mm-hmm. I, i'll say that backpacks i think are primarily made to look good on the store shelf and some of these backpack companies, I'm like, you guys used to know how to make a fucking good backpack. Mm-hmm. Like in the 90s, you guys made good backpacks. Maybe not great, but you made good backpacks. But now you make pretty garbage or mm-hmm. something that I consider pretty not very good stuff. But man, it looks good on the shelf, mm-hmm. and it ticks the boxes for the sales mm-hmm. rep in the store, mm-hmm. right? So in some of those things, you even kind of unpacked on uh, the weight of killing something and be super honest here. I mean, I hunted, grew up hunting as a kid, hunted by myself, 
um, everything. And then I got out of it for like 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to get into elk hunting. And I was really conflicted on it um, because I loved watching elk. Mm -hmm. I loved seeing them out in the wild. And I didn't know what it was going to feel like when I pulled the trigger the first time on an elk. And what I realized to myself, the first time I pulled the trigger, I was literally like 18 yards from these elk. Mm -hmm. I ran down a mountain, intercepted them. Was it struck a chord in me, and it felt exactly like something I was supposed to do, you know? And I was like, no, I mean, I don't feel bad about doing it for the right purpose Mm -hmm. and all this. And even though, and it's hard to explain to the non-hunter that you can have this deep love and admiration for a species, but also kill them. You know, th- they, they don't see that as something that computes. Like, how can you shoot this thing you profess to absolutely love? Like, you can sit amongst, like I told you last night about my friend that we sat amongst elk listening to him talk. He was a vegan. He had no clue of all that, you know, and it was nighttime, and you could hear the mew and just the herd chatter and stuff. And he was like, wow, that's, that's crazy, you know. Um, but how you can sit there and, be so appreciative of that moment and the species and when you learn about the species and how they do things to propagate Mm -hmm. and keep themselves solid how a cow will take another cow's calves and how there's usually some sort of sentry that kind of helps protect us so when you see the cows herd up around their bull if they feel their bull is threatened you know i mean there's a lot of cool stuff there Mm -hmm. but you know people have a hard time like well why are you why are you taking a gun with 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 a lethal projectile in it or a or a bow with this really sharp pointy thing at the end Mm -hmm. that you think is going to really damage them and shooting it at them Mm -hmm. but it's it's a part of you we're predators yeah and that's in the guns and the bows are our that's our extension. We have thumbs and we right. have brains, so we've been able to have these. We can't run 50 miles an hour. We don't have fangs. We don't have claws. We don't have fur that keeps us warm in the snow. So we are still a predator, but we are a predator. You know, we're a chimpanzee that has built tools. You know, that's what we've mm-hmm. done. And yeah. and if we if, if we could go as fast as a chimp and we're as strong as a chimp and we could catch something and whack its head against a tree and eat it, we would. But we have we, we just have advanced tools yeah i'd much rather hunt like a mountain lion that's of ultra, course that's true ultralight yeah the lion isn't like man i got a 40 pound pack on my back yeah. no he just walks out there and he gets it done where'd you get that fur yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> um and with that yeah yeah awesome guys i i think that's great we could we could do this again sometime for sure absolutely um, Thanks, thanks, Kyle, for jumping out here real quick. Um, thanks, Donnie, for being here and, and checking out stuff. And yeah, uh, thanks for listening, guys. And we'll be back soon. I guess. Have a good day. <laughs>